No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country. Produce players and grow and play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony. I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us all Well, after one of the craziest weeks in the history of football, where a Super League was unveiled and buried within the space of two days. A 29-year-old Ryan Mason somehow ended up managing a cup final for Spurs. Dublin lost its Euro 2020 fixtures at long last and a social media blackout is announced in the face of online abuse by English football. You can tell we're absolutely dying for some madness on the pitch and despite what Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli might tell you, the domestic leagues across Europe are certainly delivering and we're here to take a look at all the goings-on. Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Back podcast, joined as usual by Enda and Phil. How are you, lads? How are you doing, lads? So as we approach the run-in across the leagues in Europe, we'll take a look at some of the title races still up for grabs. Um, taking a closer look at Portugal in particular with Tom Cundert from Portugal.net, where Sporting Club are on course for their first league title since 2002, ahead of what could be a very big summer for the Portuguese national side and their star-studded squad going into the Euros. Um, but lads, I mean, talk about a busy week last week um, since we last spoke on the podcast, um, kind of lamenting the Super League and kind of tearing it apart, the, the pure notion of it. It was well and truly dead in the water by come about 8pm the, the Tuesday after we'd recorded on the Monday. I mean, talk about a, a catastrophic collapse in, in just a... A dumpster fire um, of an idea that, um, I mean, we we were kind of asking ourselves, were we going to be here come August, September, you know, previewing the upcoming Super League? But I don't think anyone, any of us would have predicted how quickly it was going to be uh, torn apart there by the, by the, uh, I think it was Chelsea and City were the first clubs to kind of get a little bit uh, queasy at the, at the thought. And obviously some of the protests that followed kind of pushed everyone's hands and, and eventually we had um we had some pretty embarrassing uh, <laughs> apologies from uh, from certain wealthy billionaires um going up on online. Yeah, I, I think what struck me was that the amount of stuff that we pointed to in the podcast as being weaknesses of this thing came to bear just, you know, about <laughs> at least kind of eight or nine months quicker than we actually thought was going to be the case. And I think th- we thought it was a flimsy proposal. It turns out it was even yeah. flimsier than that. Like <laughs> we thought the market wasn't great. We thought the optics of it with only twelve teams from six countries or from three countries rather, six cities wasn't great. Um, everything we thought about it, it was actually even worse than that. So it was built on even less than we thought than we gave them credit for. Uh, and I think it was like the perfect case study in the fact that it's not actually talent or intelligence that will get you to the top of corporate fields. It's actually brass neck. I mean, like it was just brazenness from these twelve billionaires <laughs> to roll roll this thing out without like barely have a proper 
website. Nobody running comms other than Florentino Perez going on late night Spanish TV to chat with Juan about it. Like it was just trying to style it out uh, without anything to actually back it up. And it was like built on even shakier foundations than we thought. And like you said, Kev, I don't think anyone saw it coming that it was going to fall around, fall down around their ears quite so quickly. And I think I, I probably didn't give players enough credit either last week. Uh, I, I did think that they were going to be the yeah. keys in stopping it, but I thought that it mightn't come as quickly and I thought it might come only when when their pockets were threatened with these kind of salary caps or whatever they were talking about. But it definitely looks like the resistance of players and managers, um, certainly amongst the English players anyway, allied to the fan stuff. Um, pushed it over the edge but I do think if the fans had done what they did but the players rode in it might have lived a little longer um, but yeah like it was even worse than we thought it was and seeing it come down it was like the best night on football Twitter I think there ever was uh, there's finally been a night better than the night Samir Nasri got the drip doctors in <laughs> which had been my favourite until then but um, that kind of manic kind of 90 minutes when when City and Chelsea were pulling out Woodward was going United were out then you, like you knew by then the shit was really happening and like uh, then there was rumors like Nelly was gone like it just it felt like you know like football's version of the Arab Spring or something like it was just like a revolution people were at the gates and it was being broken down it was mad uh, and then we're settling in for Champions League semi-finals including three of uh, three to four who were ready to leave the competition <laughs> so you know um, maybe things aren't quite as revolutionized as we thought they might have been Tuesday evening but uh, it was definitely an entertaining and very long week. Yeah, De Gea's failed transfer uh, on Twitter was one of my favourite nights. Oh, but yeah, Drip Doctor, great. I was uh, in my local on that Saturday night, and that was that was a hell of a night, I must say. <laughs> Fair play, Summer. But I think <laughs> I think what it did show is that if you are going to have the neck to try and break away and create your own league, at least communicate directly what the plan for that league is. Otherwise, you're just going to open yourself up to this wave of abuse that actually wasn't even irrelevant for half the journalists and teams tweeting about it. You know, I mean, Crystal Palace talking about, oh, we can't be promoted or relegated. No, you still could under the new regulations. What they were basically trying to do was just replace the Champions League and make more money in the process. And as still as a dreadful as idea as that is, because they failed to communicate that in literally the first line of any press release that didn't even exist on Monday night uh, it just opened them up to this wave of abuse where clubs from all four divisions could say you're taking away our game you're doing this you're doing that when actually I mean as we discussed on Monday the new Champions League proposals are equally just as damaging as any Super League potentially in terms of they'll still handpick certain teams to qualify even if they've not finished top four etc more teams more games more slog but they really deserve the criticism across the board for just how badly they managed the comms, the, the process, you know, the communication of saying what this thing was supposed to be. Uh, and it got to the point where I think about Thursday or Friday, at least 60 or 70% of the people had convinced themselves that they were just trying to build their own uh, domestic league. Um, and I'm not saying that makes them right, but it just goes to show how powerful as well that, you know, perception can travel online. Uh, if you don't actually communicate things properly, which which they didn't do. And as we discussed that Monday night, they had no, you know, marketing or PR infrastructure in place to even think about something like this so soon. So as Phil said, the neck to run with it anyways, and just hope everybody would get on the board within the next three or four months so this thing could take off in August is even more bizarre when you think about it a week later. 
I know it was only a couple of days, but I really hope there was some cameras following some of these characters around um, and it will have a little bit of documentary down the line somewhere because just so much was packed into those 48, 50 hours. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Ed Woodward um, resigning. Um, the Florentino Perez uh, interview on, on Spanish TV, I think it was the Monday night, um, and then he followed up with a radio interview um, on another station which was like a a 12 a.m at night um uh he was on speaking about the super league and defending um his vision for it i mean there was so much packed in and then you obviously had the the marino news thrown in um on the monday um his sacking at spurs um and then i i mean waking up on wednesday morning um like to see um john henry and his um his gravel um, to the Liverpool supporters and I mean how many times now have we seen um, the the Liverpool owner kind of have to backtrack on, on some of the decisions he's made and like Phil we're, we're aware of the success he's obviously brought and um, I mean the decision to bring in Klopp especially has kind of completely turned the club around and you can look at the Premier League and the Champions League that he's delivered but he's had a couple of uh, of egg on face moments and I think this more than any has uh, has kind of alienated him further than ever from from the fan base. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's only so many times that you can accept an apology for them misreading the situation or having good intentions that ended up being misguided. And, like, it feels like FSG are on their third or fourth strike of that, and this was by far the worst one. But, like, it's it's a pattern of um, of behaviour now. It's not just a mistake. It's not misreading the room. And if it is, they're consistently and constantly doing it. Um, so, like, either... If you take them at his face value, then like they're not learning from their mistakes, and they're not that intelligent. Or if you take the more likely route, they don't actually really care. Um, and like what what like shocked me, whatever about not speaking to Klopp beforehand. I mean, if I was John Henry, I would have done. But whatever. I mean, you know, he's rich enough not to really have to ask anyone what he wants to do in any situation in his life. But um, as of like last weekend he still hadn't spoken to Klopp. And I re- I know the typical run of their relationship is that Klopp talks to Mike Gordon and Mike Gordon is the key relationship holder within FSG. But if I'm John Henry and I put Klopp in the position he was in last week and I've gone onto the internet to give two minutes of, you know, fawning apology to people, I'd at least be picking up the phone to the most important person uh, in, in the club to say, listen, you know, my fucking bad. Sorry about that. We go again. Uh, but, like, I... <laughs> I, I don't I, I just don't know how many more times FSG can go through this. I mean, there's a couple of fan groups now who are saying they want fan representation on the board. There's obviously loads of people who are saying FSG outsell the club. The usual sort of caveats with that. I mean, you know, the people who are going to be waiting in the wings to buy a club like Liverpool are going to be um, Gulf States again. Like the last thing I want is Saudi Arabia strolling into Liverpool because as evil as venture capitalists are, uh, there's, there's degrees there. And I think Saudi Arabia are a few notches above and the kind of you know, the Simpsons uh, Republican Party layer of evil people all around the table. I think Saudi Arabia are at the head of that table and venture capitalists are a little bit further down. So it's a complicated situation now, but FSG, I think, have blotted their copybook permanently now. I mean, you might have just been able to get over the like the ticket prices thing. Hasn't been forgotten, but it's kind of been made okay by the success. The same with the trademark and the Liverpool, t- the Liverpool name. But Project Big Picture and now the Super League, I think, will leave kind of a it's changed people's perceptions of them i think they are now viewed more in line with what the glazers have been viewed as at united from day one as opposed to 
FSG running Liverpool like Moneyball aren't these guys great I think that's gone now in people's minds to be honest yeah and it's actually quite surprising because if you'd looked at it 18 months ago you know Liverpool were pretty much had the Premier League wrapped up at that point anyways they were still reigning European champions every single signing every single move they had made in the past two to three years um, most significantly Klopp obviously had had paid off for them you know and they just looked like out of those top six owners FSG certainly were coming out looking the best which mm. I know the competition isn't <laughs> isn't amazing <laughs> by any means um, but you know uh, what Phil mentioned about the ticket prices and the trademark but even the, the furloughing the staff I mean yeah that you know it, it it sounds I almost sound like a cheesy Liverpool supporting saying this, but to do that to the to the city of Liverpool, so you know working class and have such a history of you know uh, employee rights issues going mm. back to the Thatcher days, just shows how out of touch they are. And I don't think they've really read the room ever since then. Not bringing a centre back in the summer and then chasing kind of players on loan in January. Uh, in fairness, I, I I've no issues with the apology. At least he tried, I suppose. But again, it just it, it was too little, too late, and. You know, almost looked like a prisoner kind of <laughs> pleading for his life or something, you know. It was but um like there's still no glazers, but that's not too hard. But yeah, they've really they've really had a poor eighteen months considering, you know, the positive contributions they made. And listen, they're not perfect, no, none of them are, but you know, everything Liverpool needed from their owners in the past three to four years, up until like last February or March they delivered and they stayed yeah. in the background. I mean, this was a guy who, you know, handed out the medals when you won the League Cup back in whenever, 2013 or 14, you know. But yet now they've just stayed behind the scenes, just let Klopp get on with it, just let the players and the fans get on with it. And all of a sudden they're back in the spotlight again. And and as Phil has pointed out, I don't think they're going to recover fully from this one. Um, I, I don't see them selling Liverpool either, but it's just a case of, you know, they'll forever now be tainted for sure. Just sign in Beppe. I think that'll, that'll be all forgiven. <laughs> yeah, just, if, uh, just pl- if you go through some yeah. of the, the mentions on Twitter. Yeah, plunge them into uh, debt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before um, before we go on to the actual football, any any word for, for Ed Woodward before we move on? Uh, God, what do you say? Um, <laughs> like seven it's, years it's of a- publicly embarrassing yourself against your superiors... And then saying that the Super League had nothing to do with you and you didn't know about it until it was announced. I mean, <sighs> God, um, listen, the weird thing about Ed is there's parts of the job that he's actually brilliant at. I mean, there, there are rumors that there are American executives who want to get in front of this guy and figure out how he gets these sponsorship deals. How the hell can he monetize a club so successfully in terms of generating all that sponsorship income. And what always surprised me since sort of 2014, 2015 onwards, when it was very clear he was always going to be out of his depth at the negotiation table against Perez, you know, Agnelli, whoever, um, even the even the PL executives. Why not just bring in that director of football and let them take all the slack of Glazers not giving them money, you know, big contracts, signing Schweinsteiger because Van Hal asked you to bring in Nadine Marie, even though he didn't want to join... And Ed could have just been in the background. And it just shows the ego and the greediness of the man that he wanted to be, you know, out there in front, you know, one of his first interviews, you know, we can do things in the transfer market people can only dream of, you know, just constantly embarrassing himself 
Um, so it's been a hell of a run. I mean, he can't even resign and leave. He has to hang around for six months in classic Ed fashion, just sticking out the room <laughs> as always, you know. Uh, and then he'll probably handpick his replacement anyway. So, well, technically, it's a positive thing for United. I wasn't doing backflips either because if Ed is leaving, they're probably just going to bring in an, a Woodward protege. Um, where it leaves United in terms of negotiations, well, obviously, just John Murta has has that role now, anyways. So, so we'll see. Um, you know, it's a pretty big summer for United in terms of you know they've stabilised being you know top two, top three club in the past two seasons. They've bringing in the Champions League money, but they still have two or three positions that they really need top-class signings in. So it'll be interesting to see how they go about the business this summer. But knowing Ed isn't going to be a part of it still makes me sleep slightly better at night, even only fractionally. But uh, yeah, his legacy will be a dreadful one and uh, won't be sorry to see him go. I think we can uh, we can finally get on to the actual football, can we, Les? Um I mean, since the Super League was announced, Liverpool have managed to to draw twice, um, concede two very, very late goals against Leeds um, and then Newcastle. So, um, Phil, are you are you kind of signing off in the top four race at this point? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, like Chelsea um, winning and Leicester winning really Leicester, kind of sealed yeah. off. Like Leicester, like for when for a while it looked like there might be two places back in play uh, with recent results, but Leicester kind of has sealed themselves off from fifth now so they look safe and um other than Chelsea getting through the, the Champions League semi-finals and maybe having one eye off the ball a little bit um I, I think they probably have enough uh Liverpool have United obviously this weekend but it's actually been in the the games against the sort of sides they have left that they've struggled they can have bottom six uh, they've been really bad this season and every time you think that there's maybe a corner being turned in that there's been a couple of decent league performances and things aren't looking too bad. And the way they got the win against Villa last week, um, which is kind of like should have been a real shot in the arm. Um, then you, you like you turn in the sort of second half they did against Leeds, but especially the way they played in the second half against Newcastle. I mean, I thought the first half, other than not adding a goal, I actually thought broadly it was fine. I didn't have a problem with it, um, other than the usual, now usual sort of wastefulness. But the second half, they were like terrible. They were genuinely awful and um to get like I, I i don't i don't normally actually get angry at liverpool doing badly like i'm kind of whatever about it um <laughs> more sad than angry i suppose but i was actually angry at the weekend when they got this ridiculous reprieve um from the callum wilson goal uh from like a stupid rule that shouldn't be a rule because like what the only way that ball doesn't hit wilson's arm is if he doesn't have an arm like it was like it's just a cheaper rule. Anyway, I won't get too bogged down in it. But they got like the luckiest lucky breaks, uh, and then weren't able to focus in enough to prevent Newcastle from getting another chance deeper into stoppage time. Uh, and like that was just really frustrating. Like there are levels you can accept Liverpool aren't going to hit the ninety-nine point barrier uh, without like Van Dijk and Gomez and everything else that's happened this season. But there are levels that no matter who is playing in, at centre half or in midfield that they just shouldn't be, they should be above. And that was an example at the weekend. They should be above that level, nearly regardless of who's in the team, and certainly given the team that they had out. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably is gone. They don't really deserve it either. And I think if they manage to squeak mm. it, it's probably a mark of other teams. Like I said, Chelsea taking dry up the ball, West Ham wilting a little bit. Um, but like the season they've had, or certainly the second half of the season they've had, they really don't deserve it. Um, and I, I think they'll probably get what they deserve. 
I think I've been on this too long, Phil. I think all my negativity has drained from my body. I've just <laughs> gone through the microphone over to you because that's a staggering <laughs> white flag wave there. I mean, Chelsea's running is, you know, City, Arsenal, Leicester, Villa. Compare that to Liverpool, who after the United match have Southampton, West Brom, Burnley and Palace. I mean, five games, four points. I think there's loads to play for, to be honest. I know West Ham are in the mix as well, but, you know, Moise will probably kick in there so um i i think there's loads to play for uh, especially with chelsea i mean in recent weeks we've said you know they've not been tearing it up either then they obviously have two legs to play against real madrid so uh i i think yeah obviously they're outsiders for now but uh if they can get through the united match at the weekend i think 12 points out of 12 certainly isn't off the table and and if they do do that, uh, I can see Chelsea certainly dropping plenty of points against those four or five opponents they have left. Yeah, I mean, West Ham starting to stutter a little bit there. Um, Kielecci, Iheanacho keeping Leicester's top four hopes alive there. Nearly single-handedly, he's kind of turned into Cristiano Ronaldo the past couple of weeks. I think it's 14 goals in 14 games now. Um, and in terms of the top two, I mean, that Leeds result a couple of weeks ago against City maybe give some people a little bit of hope but uh i think that draw at the weekend probably uh put any hope of uh, of a miracle there in the last couple of games to bed as well yeah i mean it was nice when it got down to eight points and then you start thinking of obviously uh, 2012 and city turning that gap around but uh realistically i think it was always comfortably city's title to lose for the last few months um so the fact that united have managed to what looks like nail down second outright um, and finish top three for back-to-back seasons for the first time since Fergie. I mean, mm. y- you get obsessed with the word, you know, progress in inverted commas, especially during COVID when there's so many factors um, at play. But overall, things are moving slowly in the right direction. But um, I'm still not, you know, jumping on the bed here, thinking about what we've achieved this season. Obviously, winning the Europa will be great for Oli just to get a trophy and, and, you know, to get that off his back. But there still is a lot of work to be done. I still think there's a lot of lack of concentration in the squad. They're still not really, you know, street smarts in terms of how they manage games, um, in terms of how they manage leads. Um, and, yeah, the leads match wasn't great on, on Sunday, obviously, but that didn't worry me too much. I thought United were actually in control mostly for most of the match. Leads were quite disappointing. And with an eye, obviously, to Thursday, it wasn't surprising as it went on and that it was going to be nil-nil. But, yeah, overall, I think it's been a, a decent season for United. When you look at the start they made, the Spurs match, the, the Palace match, uh, things were looking very, very bad there. So they managed to steady the ship and they're getting good performances out of some of their better players. And Luke Shaw obviously has been the standout for sure. I mean, I was reading some of his stats today. I mean, they're just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, as much chances created as Messi is one of them, which is, <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible, you know. But uh, so, yeah, there's plenty to work with. Bit concerned that Baye got the new contract, which would probably suggest they're not in the market for a centre-back this summer. Um, also concerned where that leaves Twanzeby as well. So things like that. We still need another right-back option, but Ethan Laird has had a fantastic um, loan spell at MK Don, so I wouldn't mind bringing him back. So uh, there's there's more positives and negatives to take out from the season. And, you know, if you'd said after that Spurs match that we'd finish second and Jose would be out of a job, I would have snapped your hand off. So, yeah, that's good <laughs> for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, good point there on Shaw. I mean, if he should be the left back in the team of the season, but if there was a, a most improved player uh, award, he'd probably be a, be a certainty for it. There's been some turnaround there the past couple of weeks, or the past season, really. Um, Castor eyes across Europe, and I mean, there's so much going on. Um, title races, top fours, I mean, still to still to be uh, decided. Um We'll start off from Bundesliga and we had Stefan Bienkowski on a couple of weeks ago um, talking about the German league and a little bit of a kind of a managerial merry-go-round. Um, obviously at the time there was talk of uh, Hansi Flick going to the national team and I think that's kind of been put in motion now with his uh, his decision to to leave Bayern. Um, Marco Rose is obviously going to Dortmund from uh, Mönchengladbach. Um, Eddie Hutter is leaving Eintracht Frankfurt for, um, for Gladbach. Um, and now the uh, the kind of musical chairs is is nearly complete now with the with the news that Julian Nagelsmann is is off to Bayern Munich from Leipzig. Um, I think the fee is about twenty million euros, so a fairly big investment there for um for Bayern. But I mean, they seem happy to get him um, a huge five year deal, um, and once again uh, another German side kind of plucked apart there by uh, by the big powers that be in in Bayern. It's it's funny, isn't it? With like, because basically the whole idea of Leipzig's model, the whole idea of the Red Bull project, is this kind of uh, like selling things on. So like Salzburg sell to Leipzig, sell to whoever, and it's now happening with managers. So like Nagelsmann uh, is going to net them twenty million. I know they have to go and whoever going <laughs> to appoint, but like and like uh, you know you've heard things about it being maybe um, maybe Glasner from from Wolfsburg, but. Like Nagelsmann's after making them twenty million, <laughs> like it's pretty nuts, and um, that like even their their really successful model for for selling on players is now transferring to a great uh, to to a white who I think is going to be a, a, proved to be a fantastic elite level manager. Uh, I, like myself and my friends have uh, have a bit of a habit of slagging them because of you know the suits and the way he the poses and like the social media presence and all that. But actually behind it all, um, I think is an absolutely fascinating coach and. He's going to be like a kid in the toy shop now with that Bayern squad, um, and yeah, I don't think it's it says great things for for the rest of the Bundesliga uh, if they're now hoovering up managers as well as the best talent. But uh, I think it'll make for for some very interesting formations, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, if they really want to complete the merry go round, then surely Jesse Marsh from yeah. <laughs> the Bundesliga yeah. Salzburg side Salzburg. would. He even kind of looks a bit like Nagelsmann as well, even though slightly <laughs> older. So, uh, but yeah, I'd agree with Phil. There's something far more interesting about Nagelsmann than even you know when they hired Nico Kovac from Frankfurt, who was he didn't seem to have that level of tactical nous or, or depth. There's something always been a bit different about Nagelsmann. Obviously. We all get sucked in by these younger managers who appear to be, you know, students of the game. Uh, and the suit at Old Trafford, I, I can't not mention it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was just uh, ridiculous. And then to lose 5-0, but even to bounce back from that and qualify from the group shows, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of substance there as well. And uh, and he makes the big decisions as well at, at Leipzig. You know, he, he, he drops players when they need to be dropped. Um, and... I'm I'm really fascinated to see how he goes about. Also, at Leipzig, I mean, quite rare, but a four-four-two has been their kind of go-to formation, especially when they had Werner, which isn't really the modern way to play anymore. But it'd be interesting to see how he approaches that at Bayern. 
Uh, I still think there's a few challenges at Bayern. Obviously, if Alaba and Boateng leave in the summer, uh, Thomas Muller is still hugely influential. And one of the reasons Kovac lost his job was because he he wasn't playing Thomas Muller. And the first thing Hansi Flick did when he got the job is pick Thomas Muller. same with Neuer as well. I mean, there's there's no issue of ever dropping Neuer, no matter how many mistakes he makes in a season, even though he has kind of revived his career a bit in terms of his form in the past kind of six to 12 months. But that's a tough environment for, I think, a 33-year-old to go into. And, you know, can he stand I mean, up to he, those he, players? He's younger than, uh, than Neuer, the captain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that is a really tough situation to put yourself into. But... Um, I suppose if if not now, then never really, because Leipzig, yeah, they're bringing in Bobbery, the highly rated striker in the summer, but they they have been a bit of a selling machine the past few years, and there's only so much, so much, so many times you can do that before it starts to take its toll. Um, so I think the timing is right. Um, and Flick has looked a bit jaded this season. Bayern have looked a bit jaded this season after so much success last year as well. So they do need a refresh, but how he'll Managed to fill that gap between the kind of young players like Pavard, Hernandez, um, and uh, the Canadian left back whose name has completely slipped my slipped my memory at the Fonto moment. Davis. Yes, Fonto Davis. Davis. Thank you guys. Um, <laughs> so those younger type of players, Musiala as well, um, and then kind of that experienced cohort who still probably have another kind of sixteen to twenty four months at Bayern calling the shots. So um, I wouldn't be overly surprised if. The first 12 to 18 months didn't go as planned for him and Bayern. It just depends whether they can be more patient with him than they were with Kovac, for example, who was clearly just not a right fit from the start. Yeah. In terms of the the top four, I mean, Bayern have it pretty much nailed on at this point. They're seven points ahead of, of Leipzig with, I think it's three games left. Um, Dortmund, I mean, they've been kind of hanging outside the top four for the past couple of weeks Staring to get hot um, at the right moment. There are f- four wins on the trot now and just a point off Frankfurt. Um, and Wolfsburg, then and third, have been a, a little bit of an inconsistent uh, there the last while. So all to play for there um, in Bundesliga in the last couple of weeks. Um, over in France, I mean, France is, is mental altogether at the moment. Um, huh. Purely purely with, you know, the, the, the entire notion of PSG not winning... Um, you know, with with the squad that they have is a uh, is pretty crazy. I mean, this weekend alone, they they beat Mets on Saturday evening, three uh, one there, and then uh, Lille needed a very late winner um, against Leon to win three two and put them back into the uh, the top of the table by a, by a single point. Um, there's four points left there. I mean, what an achievement that would be for Lille. And I'm, we we spoke about it a couple of weeks back. Um, I mean, they do have a really talented young squad that. You know, you would imagine would be picked apart, kind of like Monaco were a couple of years back, um, with the likes of Fabino and Mbappe. Um, it would be fantastic to see it, wouldn't it? The little Lille kind of overturning the the huge financial backing of, of guitar there. Yeah, especially like in a normal year, it's likely that they get picked apart, but it's an absolute race and certainty now that the the media deal in France has, has gone kaput. And um, like mm-hmm. there'll be there will be a fire sale, and that team is not going to exist in a couple of weeks. So it's kind of the last days of Rome now. I really hope they they, they stick to it. Um, and like my my heart kind of sunk a little bit when I saw they were two 0 down. Um, because I thought like you know and look because especially because it was it, it was against Leon who themselves are kind of creeping back. If, if they'd have won, they would have kind of been 
in Re- in the shakeup. Um, but it, no, it was it was great to for them to pull it out um, and to keep things going. Like you said, it, it would be great to kind of anytime PSG don't win, no matter who who wins the league, it feels like a, a, a blow for a strike for the little guy, even if it might not necessarily be. Um, but yeah, it, it would be great. Um, just before everything goes kaput for most teams other than PSG in that league, if um, if somebody could strike a blow against them. Yeah, I mean this would. Be an unbelievable story, not because of the young talent that's there that'll obviously get gutted, you know, David Icone, Sumari, obviously. But if you look at a spine of Jose Font, Andre Benjamin, and Burak Ilmaz, combined age 102 between those three players, <laughs> I mean, that would be a phenomenal achievement to see them win over a PSG side that has, you know, obviously Poch uh, managing them, Neymar, uh, Di Maria, Icardi, Mbappe, etc. So, you know, I agree. Renato Sanchez as well, kind of reviving his career after, you know, yeah. a rubbish long spell at Fulham there a couple of years ago uh, where nobody really wanted to touch him with a barge pole. Um, so it's just an incredible story, really. Um, and, you know, I, I was with Phil there, uh, seeing them go 2-0 down against Leon. You thought, right, this is it now. This is this is game over, especially after PSG the week before had sco- scored a couple of late goals um, to get three important points at home against St. Etienne. So um, there's still a lot of work for them to do, but yeah, it'd be fantastic. It'd be the story of the season across Europe for sure. Mm. Quick word on the Serie A, Dan, um, a league we haven't looked at in a couple of weeks now, but I mean, Inter have ran away with the title. Um, Antonio Conte has just done a, a remarkable job there, but the huge interest is in the top four race um, and feel that we kind of laugh at how bad Liverpool were um, since the Super League was announced. Milan as well, uh, 2-1 loss to Sassuolo last week um, and 3-0 loss to Lazio at the weekend. So, I mean, they're, they've been really hit with that uh, post-Super League slump uh, since that was announced. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the huge story is really Juventus. I mean, just hanging in there, they're, they're level on points with Napoli and Milan. Um, Atlanta, obviously, thereabouts again for was it the second or third successive season? Now you know you have to hand it to them. It's been super, super impressive league form, um, and kind of translated that into Europe as well. But it would be something if uh, if Juventus uh, missed out. But I mean, in, in in the current form with uh, with AC Milan, you'd have to fancy uh, Juventus to get that fourth spot. You'd imagine they're going to find a way to get it done, but like Lazio have a game in hand, I'm pretty sure, on Juve and Milan. And if they win, they're, I think, within a win of them. I think they're winning one or two points yeah. if they win that game in hand. Um, so they might not just be relying on uh, on Milan to, to slip up. They might need Lazio to do so similarly. Um, but you, like, it, it's, it's like, frankly, it's incredible to see Juve nine scoot out in a row, absolutely comfortable. Like uh, last last year or two, it's been a little less so. But I mean, like the dominant force in Italian football for the last decade, um, maybe relying a little bit on clubs like Inter not having their shit together. But even still, um, they're kind of slide this year, obviously coinciding with with Pirlo taking the main job, um, and a squad that was suddenly or that was built to win now all of a sudden winning yeah. nothing ever, um, and it's not exactly in the sort of shape of a squad that be used to fighting for fourth. It's very much a squad who's used to winning Scudetto. And then uh, pushing on, well, trying to push on in Champions League obviously hasn't happened for a couple of years, but that's the type of squad they are. It's not a kind of dig-in squad necessarily, and certainly not, not a dig-in for fourth squad. So it will be interesting to see if you know if, if either of Juve or Milan trip over their feet, do Lazio get back in, 
will Juve just hold off? I'm not a million percent sure on um, on the run in for either side what it looks like, but um, like like you said about Atlanta, it would be unbelievable if they get a third year in a row of Champions League football. Even better if they finish second, a uh, distant second, absolutely to to an Inter side who are going to win the league mm. almost certainly. But um, yeah, it makes for very interesting times. All right. Yeah, Juve's next four games are not what they would have hoped did, for. Udinese away. They do have Milan, in fairness. Milan at home. Sassuolo away, yeah. who've had a great season. And then Inter at home, who'll be champions by then, probably. And then finishing up with Bologna away, which is never an easy fixture either. So that is a pretty brutal run-in. Um, so I'd probably have Lazio favourites at the moment just to sneak forth. But like, what a depressing story, really, Juve have become since the days <laughs> of Conte and Allegri in 3-5-2 and a... Pirlo, on a, Pirlo and Pogba on a free signing and Vidal costing pennies from Leverkusen to see what they are now, you know, trying to haggle uh, Morata's loan fee down from 10 million to 5 million to hang on to him next year. I mean, the implications of the, the financial implications of what they've done to bring Ronaldo in are really hitting home now. I mean, yeah. they absolutely smashed their wage structure. Um, he's the most overpaid player in their squad three times to one, I think. Um, and the message that I sent to the likes of Dybala and the others who, you know, were pretty significant in, you know, those run into the Champions League finals to win in the Coppa Italias, to win in the so Serie You know, I'm not saying the Ronaldo signing has been a failure. Absolutely not. Uh, his record is as good as it was in Madrid. But when you smash your weight structure to that degree that they've done, you're always going to have implications if if the economy does take a hit like it did with COVID, and I think we're really seeing them now uh, struggle with that. They've been obviously credited with being very shrewd in the transfer market in the past with loan signings of certain French midfielders. I can't say their names because I'll get accused <laughs> of having agendas <coughs> on Twitter. But, uh, you know, I mean, talks of bringing Pogba back are just a joke at the moment when you can't even afford to pay 10 million <laughs> for another year, Morata, you know. Um, and he's your striker alongside Ronaldo, who'll be, what, 37 or 38 next year. So I think they're in for a really, really bad few years if they can't sort themselves out this summer. And it probably has to start with replacing Pirlo as well. Yeah, just looking at the squad here, I mean, Ronaldo alone, what is he, 36, but it's a very ageing squad. I mean, they still have, obviously, the likes of Buffon and Cialini on the books, but Juan Cuadrado is north of 30 at the moment, um, Alexandro as well, Aaron Thur- Ramsey is 30. I mean, the, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of repair needed there on the overall squad before they even move on from Ronaldo. Yeah, there is. I mean, and again, it goes back to, obviously, Delit was a great signing in terms of the profile he had at mm-hmm. Ajax, but... It, but it wasn't enough. I mean, they didn't. They'd been trying for two or three years to integrate Daniel Rugani into trying replacing this Chiellini, Bonucci, uh, Barzagli stranglehold that had Juventus really surviving um, for those four to five years under Allegri and Conte. And really, they've only brought in one good centre back uh, in that time to replace those three. Um, obviously, they tried Medi Binati as well, but he failed. And then they moved him on to Qatar. They sold Rugani, so. They've really been trying to shoehorn Delit into the middle of this uh, Chiellini, Bonucci kind of back two, back three, whenever one, one or both are fit. Um, and that's been a big challenge for him as well. He had a very rough start in his first few games. I think he settled quite well overall, and I think it'll be a great signing for Juventus. But, I mean, if you look throughout the squad, I mean, the midfield especially, I mean, if they want to get rid of Ramsey, they probably want to get rid of Rabio. Obviously, they, they moved on. Uh, Kadira and Matuidi, but... 
you know, McKenney has a lot of growing up to do as well, but I think he'll be a mm. fine player for them. But like they need seven or eight genuine good signings uh, throughout the squad if they really want to, you know, compete against Inter next season. Uh, and that sounds dramatic, but, you know, when you look at that on paper, the age profile of the squad, and uh, not to mention they tried to sell Paolo Dybala, you know, a year and a half ago, and his relationship with the management since then hasn't been great. And he's really struggled to get over three bouts of COVID he apparently have had last summer as well. That's really affected him. So uh, it really couldn't have gone much worse for them across the board. And obviously then getting knocked out by Porto was just, you know, the cherry on the cake for them. So I really don't know where they go from here, to be honest. Um, it's going to take, you know, another Conte-esque level of squad fixing um, that he did back in, you know, was it 2011 or 12 when he took over? Um, and I don't think that type of profile, that type of personality yeah. is out there for Juventus at the moment. Leaving the best to last then, maybe um, in La Liga. I mean, what a title race this is shaping up to be. Um, for a while there, it looked like Atletico Madrid were going to break into the to, to the top three again. And, you know, we were kind of praising Diego Simeone over, over the course of the season and, and what an achievement he's done. But starting to slip away a little bit. Um, lost to Atletico Bilbao at the weekend. Um, Real Madrid drew at the weekend as well. And Barcelona, I think, have a, a game in hand. But... Just three points separate the top four. And, I mean, Sevilla coming like a train um, around that last bend, um, coming into the, the final straight here for, for, the, for the rest of the season. I mean, what an achievement that would be for um, for Julian Lopetegui after everything that's happened, uh, you know, first with the, the national team and then with Madrid. Imagine if he went on and, and nipped Barcelona and Real and Lechgo to the, to the league title. Uh, it, it would be absolutely incredible. And from a team that... Um had to get put together at a pretty short notice yeah. as well. It's not like it's a, a project that's been long in fruition or anything. Um, it would be absolutely remarkable. And it's brilliant that even, like, it's, it's the title race with the three big teams is good enough. But to have this kind of extra layer of maybe somebody to actually want to cheer for, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, just kind of Super League. The, yeah. the theme of these conversations <laughs> has been Super League teams getting their comeuppance. And Sevilla <laughs> winning the Liga would be, like, the biggest slice of all. Um, I, I do think it, it's probably gone a little bit under the radar because they got knocked out of the Champions League and then lost to Clasico in relatively short order. But Barca's form has actually been incredible in the league. Um, since like, After a really bad start, uh, their kind of second half of the season has been frankly ridiculous. And it's put them in a position where they looked well, well out of, of the league uh, at Christmas time to a point where you know, all being equal, they're they're probably favourites now. They, they go top, I think, don't they? With if they win their game in hand, um. So, yeah, like, they do, yeah. their form has been incredible, and it's probably something that I certainly wasn't paying enough attention to until they really closed in. It felt like everything was kind of going wrong at Barca in the first half of the season, um. And obviously, the Champions League did not go to plan, and they still don't seem like they're in the absolute peak shape in terms of the squad. And obviously, the financial situation is pretty dire. But um, it, it would be a, a pretty from where they were before Christmas. It'd be remarkable if they were to do it. But it'd be even more special uh, if if Sevilla and this kind of hastily assembled squad were to pip all three more heralded rivals. Yeah, I think the Barca stuff has gone a bit under the radar. Maybe obviously Kuman still looks pretty miserable on the sidelines and had a <laughs> had a run in with Mingueza there in the five two against Getafe last week for not tracking back and then subbed him off and. 
wouldn't shake his hand, which is never never a good look. And then they lost El Clasico a few weeks ago. But that aside, their form, messy led obviously has been pretty sensational. But yeah, for me, it's definitely severe, the story. Not just because of everything Lopetegui has gone through. I mean, that was completely humiliated by Spain and then by Real Madrid. His career could have easily been in tatters by then. But to go to Sevilla, win the Europa League with not an amazing squad last season, to be honest. I mean, um, Luke de Jong <laughs> as your striker. Uh, they brought in Chicharito, sold him to America. They brought in Munis de Boer, sold him to, to Germany, both within three or four months of arriving. So you wondered as well, did Monkey lose his touch? But seeing the signings he's brought in since then, Os Campos and El Nesre in particular, Kunde as well. I mean, it's a fantastic starting eleven when they have everybody fit. Um, so that combination of Lopetegui and now Monkey, who's definitely kind of confirmed his status as the best director of football in the game after a pretty dodgy and short spell at Roma, um, has really paid dividends and they've played, you know, a more exciting brand of football this season, even though they've, their goals haven't had many games or their games haven't had many goals. Apologies, mainly because of their strong defense and, and, and Fernando um, sitting in midfield has given them a lot of stability as well. Kind of forgotten man after his spell at Man City. Um, but they've actually been really, really good to watch. And, and those couple of players I mentioned in particular, Os Campos uh, and bringing in Suso as well from Milan uh, are, is very inspired. But then, El Nesre has been uh, the driver of that for sure. Um, Barcelona will probably just pipped them, I'd imagine, but I wouldn't be surprised if Sofia got second either. And just looking at the fixtures there, um, I mean, Sevilla still have to go to Real Madrid, which is going to be a huge game in a couple of weeks' time. Um, Atletico have to go to Barcelona. And I mean, we were talking about it earlier this season, and I think we're already 12 or 13 points ahead around the Christmas stage. I mean, He's he's on an absolute fortune um, at Atletico, and you know he has done a remarkable job. But do you think there will be a, ever a stage where you kind of have to have a little bit of a question mark over overall Cholo there in, in Atletico if they if they do throw it away at this point? Like I'm not sure about the actual politics of the situation at Atletico, but it, it it's a bit like with Jose, the ends kind of justify the means with Cholo and. If they'd have won the league this year, you'd absolutely say, well, he's bought himself another couple of years. But mm. uh, such is the increasing underperformance in the Champions League um, that, and for the outlay that there's been as well. I mean, it's not like that they, he hasn't been backed or maybe, I don't know, is he looking for the players that are being signed, but they're signing him expensive players is what I'm trying to say. Um, and particularly exciting expensive players. And if the underperformance in the Champions League is then followed by what would be a cataclysmic loss of the league. I mean, the league was theirs at Christmas by all, by all or even later than Christmas. By the last time we had yeah. Alan on to talk about it, we were like crowning them basically. Um, so I, look, I don't know about the politics and if he's safe or not, and if what he's achieved has made him kind of de facto chief. But um, I think there's, there's, there's reason to question him if you're not getting the results for the style of football he plays. Yeah, there's a lot of blood in his hands when it comes to these failed signings, to be honest. I mean, if you told any <laughs> Atletico Madrid fan, you know, four or five years ago that you'd give Diego Simeone, you know, Gelson Martins, uh, Thomas Lamar, Joe Felix, Moussa Dembele, even Jeffrey Condogbia, who, you know, had a very positive spell at Valencia in the last few years, having him uh, to win the Copa del Rey and, and becoming a, a big part Um of, of their midfield as well. Um, Lucas Torreira as well, on loan from Arsenal, who has barely got a kick. 
And out of yeah. all those signings, the most important player has been a defensive midfielder who's he's turned into a striker in Marcus Lorente, which is just the most Cholo Simeone thing you could possibly think of. And as brilliant as Lorente has been, um, the amount of talent at his disposal that he hasn't gotten the joy out of. And then other weird decisions as well, like playing Saul at left back when, you know, four or five years ago, this guy looked like one of the best central midfielders. Uh, you could possibly have hasn't hasn't played Hector Herrera much either. Um, he was a very promising signing when he joined from Porto. Trippier has been good. Lodi has been okay, um, and the centre backs are still as solid as ever, as you'd expect from a Simeone team. But um, yeah, when you are Diego Simeone and the end justifies the means, there has to be an end, um, and he needs needs to win for that to be successful. Um, uh, especially considering the salary he's on. Um, and he's probably not the easiest guy for management to deal with, I, w- I would assume as well. Um, so I wouldn't be overly surprised considering the profile of the squad, the much younger look to the squad, that if it didn't work out this year, they might look to some manager that's slightly more progressive because he is just mm. starting to look a bit past his sell-by date now. Um, but it must be said, he took over a mess at Atletico um, and has done a, an absolutely phenomenal job. But somebody with yeah. that level of intensity for nine years I think it is now at this stage um, it's always going to take its toll uh, and it looks like it has now first I thought you treated your bollocks with me to be honest this is live delighted to welcome on Tom Kundert from Portugal.net to talk a little bit about the Portuguese league and the national side thanks for joining Tom hope you're well yeah, thank you. No problem. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, Tom, we've we've taken a look at some of the title races around Europe this evening, but the Portuguese title race may yet have the most historical significance, I suppose. Um, everyone listening, I'm sure, is aware of the, the stranglehold the likes of Benfica, Porto and Sporting um, have had on the league over the past couple of years. But they might be surprised to hear that it's 2002 now um, since the last time Sporting lifted the title with guys like Joao Pinto, Hugo Viana, um, Ricardo Caresma, I think it was his first year in football there. Um, Mario Jardel, the Brazilian striker who had a pretty insane record that year with uh, 42 goals in, in 30-odd games, I think. Um, and of course, then our, our very own Phil Babb, rock solid at the back. Um, they picked up a pretty big late win at the weekend. Um, Porto dropped some points last night and we'll get into Porto a little bit later I suppose but there's six points between them now on the table how do you expect Sporting to to hold out over the next couple of games? Yeah this really was a pivotal weekend without a doubt because if you'd ask most people in Portugal who would be champions uh, about a month ago six weeks ago I think almost everyone would have said Sporting because they were 10 points ahead with 10 games remaining And it's really unheard of in Portugal for a lead like that to be whittled away. Uh, And as you just alluded to earlier, you know, the the, the three big clubs really do dominate. And it's quite unusual for them to to drop a lot of points against uh, any any clubs other than each other. But uh, Sporting have had a bit of a rocky patch. They've actually they actually drew three of their four games prior to the trip to Braga on Sunday. And so that 10-point lead had been whittled down to just four points. And uh, meanwhile, Porto were just winning game after game. They were on a seven-game winning run. 
And so, yeah, most people identified this weekend as really crucial and things got even worse for Sporting when their young centre-back, uh, Gonzalo Inacio, was sent off after just 18 minutes. Uh, sporting, you know, this really remarkable story of how Sporting have, have got to the top of the table. A lot of it is based on their young players, youth players, and Gonzalo Inacio has uh, he's been a real revelation this season. But these players have really shown a bit of their own experience and a bit of their nerves. And he just gave away two, uh, you know, really silly mistakes, bad, bad fouls. Uh, it's a bit harsh maybe, but I suppose probably were two yellow cards and he was off. So all of a sudden, Sporting were looking at, uh, you know, playing 70 minutes against in one of the toughest venues uh, and, uh, you know, just almost kind of decided from that moment onwards hold out and try and get a draw. Uh, and then they actually defended very well. That's also been one of the secrets of their success this season. They've got a fantastic defensive record. And then uh, right near the end, uh, 82 minutes, uh, they actually snatched a, a breakaway goal and ended up holding out for for the three points. And so that was just a massive win for Sporting, without a doubt. And then uh, the next day, yesterday, Monday, uh Porto were, uh, quite surprisingly, they were a bit off-colour uh, and they ended up drawing uh, one all. They actually needed a late goal to, to get an equaliser away at Moradense. And so that lead, which uh, you know a lot of sporting fans would have thought about 20, 25 minutes into the game at Braga, that maybe at the end of this round, sporting's lead will be cut to one point. In fact, it's actually increased to six points. So yeah, you know, six points, five games to play. Uh, you know, I don't think really the way Sporting have been playing, they probably won't win all five games, but they, they won't have to, I don't think, because, uh, you know, Porto have also been a bit shaky and they've also got to go and visit Benfica. So no doubt about it, Sporting really in a, in a fantastic position to, to end that long drought. Tom, you talked about, you know, <clears throat> the secret of Sporting success in sort of the past 12 to 18 months. Uh, one of the big factors has obviously been bringing in the manager, um, Ruben Amoram. And if we look at, in the past couple of decades, the Portuguese managers that have come through and, and made a big name for themselves, obviously Mourinho is, is front and centre, but, you know, AVB, Jardim, yeah, even Marco Silva, um, much the frustration of Sky Sports came with a big reputation. When they did bring him in from Braga, they actually paid a 10 million release clause, which is a very sizable fee to pay for a very young manager. Um, I know they had the Bruno Fernandes cash just coming in from United at the time, but it was still a massive risk to take and, and one that has really paid off. How is he viewed in Portugal? And, you know, in terms of the managers I mentioned there, how far can he go in the game? Yeah, well, like you said, he's just had a, an incredible start to his managerial career because the reason Sporting went for him in the first place was because at Braga he just had a brilliant spell he'd only been Braga manager for a couple of months and uh, but in those two months in that two month period uh, I can't remember the exact stats but I think it's something like he won I think 12 games out of 14 or something like that including uh, two victories against Porto two victories against Sporting uh, a victory against Benfica winning the Portuguese League Cup. And so it was almost just like, uh, you know, they, they were a good side, Braga, but they'd just sacked the previous manager because their results were a little bit up and down. 
And he just immediately came in and had a, a fantastic impact. And that's what persuaded Sporting to, you know, to splash the cash and bring him. But even though, uh, you know, everyone at the time thought it was a little bit of a rash decision, really, because he was so inexperienced. And uh, but to be fair, you know, to the Sporting president, that's it's proved to be money well spent because he's come into to Sporting and he's really, you could say, almost achieved his his second miracle. Uh, because, you know, we have to factor in, we have to remember that. At the start of this season, the expectations around sporting were absolutely zero. Benfica had spent 100 million euros in reinforcing their squad, which is unheard of. It's unprecedented in Portugal for for any team to spend that amount. Uh, Jorge Jesus had come back, of course. He uh, had had a very successful spell earlier at Benfica, six-year spell, and he was back at their club. And so they were immediately installed as big favourites to win the league. Uh, Porto, they'd won the double last season. They'd won two out of three with uh, Sergio Conceição, their manager. So, you know, sporting, most people, if you ask them to be honest, that their kind of objectives for the season would be trying to finish third. You know, last season they finished fourth. And so to do what they have done is absolutely incredible. And there's no doubt about it. You know, Ruben Amarin is the chief architect of that. That said, I think we have to be a little bit careful because... I remember, for example, when Benfica brought in a young U manager uh, a couple of seasons ago uh, called Bruno Lage. He he came in, Benfica in a bit of a state. Uh, they were quite a few points behind Porto at, around Christmas time at the turn of the year. He managed to turn it round, made them champions. And everyone was kind of up in arms saying, this this is incredible. You know, what look what this manager can do. And, uh, but then six or seven months later, you know, things have suddenly all gone pear-shaped at Benfica and he was sacked. So, you know, that just kind of shows you how quick things can change. I think we need a bit more evidence that Amarin, you know, can kind of sustain the success before we can start talking about him as the next big thing in, in Portuguese coaching. But you know, no doubt about it, he's made a, an incredible start to his managerial career. Yeah, when we look at the sporting co- squad, there's almost a, a championship manager type of feel to it. When you think of, you know, the experience they brought in in Fidel from Betis, who was a bit of an inspired signing. Quates, who Liverpool fans would know, he's been around for a very, very long time. But then you also have these young academy players. Nuno Mendes, obviously, is very highly rated with a very high release clause and always already linked with teams in Europe. And then the unbelievable success of, of Pote. Um, I'm sure a few Wolves fans will be wondering what's happened there. Um, how do you see how this squad has come together? Is does you know the sporting hierarchy deserve a bit of credit for how they've you know spent the Bruno Fernandes money? And, you know, bringing in Paulinho even in January was a, was a big statement. Um, how how would you view that? Yeah, they they just kind of hit the nail on the head. They didn't really. It wasn't really a question of spending that Bruno Fernandes money because they spent very little money. You know, most of that money went to trying to balance the books because sporting, like most Portuguese teams, you know, heavily in debt, never got much money even after a big sale. And, uh, for instance, the the three bigger signings they made, like you mentioned their pot, uh, and then uh, Nuno Santos and uh, Bruno Tabata, those three players bought from kind of the, le- the lesser lights in Portuguese football, some of the, some of the smaller teams. They, they each cost uh, about five million, I think five or six million each. So, you know, you're talking about 15 million euros. And that was, uh, and then just made, like you said, a, a few 
you know, smaller signings, Adan, the goalkeeper, uh, he was a free signing, Fedal, I think he was 2 million or something like that. So, you know, the total investment, the total outlay in new players was, you know, pretty small, uh, probably less than 20 million. And, uh, and then you've got the youth players as well and a few players brought back on loan and it's just gelled uh, fantastically. You know, it's just, it's a perfect case of really, you know, the, the, the team as a whole being much bigger than the, the, some of their parts. And so you have to give a lot of credit to uh, Amarin for that. I think one thing also he did very well is he he's very uh, what's the word he's very kind of you could say stubborn or you could say very uh, convinced about the system he uses which is a three four three system with wing backs and so he knew that was the exact way he was going to play Sporting play that system it doesn't matter who the opponent is if it's the strongest club in Portugal if it's the weakest club in Portugal it's the same system. And so he bought players tailored to fit that system. And, uh, you know, it's just worked a treat. And also, of course, that means that when one player uh, isn't available for whatever reason, if he's injured, if he's suspended, that player goes out, another player comes in, the system doesn't change. Uh, and so they know exactly what they, you know, what they have to do. And it's, it's, it's just all come together to... Uh, you know, really produce a, a really well-oiled machine. And that's been the secret of their success. Because if you look at the squads of Sporting and you compare them man for man with the squads of Porto, probably, well, I think definitely Porto and and Benfica, certainly, you know, you'd probably say that, uh, well, without doubt, you would say that those, the other two squads are much more valuable. They've got much better individuals. At least you would have said that at the start of the season without, without a shadow of a doubt. But, uh, but you know, it just proves, isn't it, that it's not individual that wins football games. It's, uh, it's the team as a whole. And uh, Amarine has just really built a really, really solid team. Yeah, one team who certainly weren't shy of spending in the summer, as you hit on earlier, was Benfica. And it really had all the elements of them dominating this season when you actually look at who they brought in. Darwin Nunes, Everton, Pedrinho, Walshmitt. And then, of course, the most important one at the time, I thought, was obviously bringing George Jesus back after winning the Copa Libertadores with Flamengo. It just looked like the perfect ingredients for Benfica to really, you know, recover after a very poor season last season. And they've not really recovered since, you know, that Champions League knockout game. Um, and it just seems week on week, it gets worse and worse for them. Uh, how have you viewed their season? Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a disaster, really, because... You're absolutely right. They were they were huge favourites. You know, everything seemed to point towards a Benfica victory, you know, in the league, uh, then kind of walking away a bit. We have to remember also Porto, although they've won two out of the last three seasons, they've been they've they've fallen foul of UEFA's financial fair play uh, rules. And so they for a couple of seasons, you know, they really just had to they, they basically couldn't buy any players. They had to sell their best players. And so, you know, they were in a in a position of weakness uh, in terms of their squad, and uh, you know, and Benfica, they that they came off, uh, you know, they've been probably the most successful Portuguese team over the last set, six or seven years. They've won the league four seasons in a row, so they've managed to to get a bit of a head start on the others. And uh, despite uh, a very disappointing season last season, yeah, like you said, all the ingredients seem to be there to 
to get back on track and to to dominate again. But uh, yeah, that was a big blow losing to uh, Paok in the qualifiers. But uh, you know, following that, I think they won their first five games of the season and uh, were quite impressive in those games. I remember one against Family Cow, especially they they smashed them. I think five nil away or five one away and. And they were top of the league after five games. Uh, and most people thought, yeah, OK, you know, this is this is how we thought it would go. But then it all kind of fell apart almost inexplicably. Uh, they had a run of poor results. And then uh, that, that, you know, they just were very inconsistent. And then COVID-19 uh, really hit them hard. Uh, they At one stage, they had 10 players out at the uh, you know, at the same point, and uh, and they just never really got going at all. Fell behind, uh, fell further and further behind. Sporting, who just kept winning, and uh, you know, in the very occasional, uh, in the very occasional weekends when they didn't win, they they managed to get a draw. So they just they're still unbeaten. Sporting, so uh, you know, Benfica just fell way behind, and then finally, when they started getting going again, which is probably about six weeks ago or two months ago, they started at last hitting a bit of form. It's really way too late, you know, to have any kind of say in the title race. They're 10 points behind, so they're completely out of it. So, yeah, it's very, you know, it's been a, a hugely disappointing season for Benfica. The coach, George Jesus, he's laid the blame uh, firmly at the feet of COVID-19. He just said we were completely devastated. We couldn't train. You know, we had to train kind of in drips and drabs. I had to do lots of training sessions using Zoom, uh, you know, not out on the field. Uh, we were much worse affected than the other Portuguese teams. But people have really, you know, taken that with a huge pinch of salt because, uh, you know, that, that perhaps explains for a, a blip or a bad month. Or But really, to be honest, if you look at, at the season, Benfica have been very disappointing for all, but maybe one month at the start and maybe this this last month. Apart from that, they've, they've just been a huge disappointment. Tom, on Porto for a second, and there was a couple of videos going around today after their um, disappointing draw last night. Um, it looked like kinda, it got a little bit heated, especially afterwards outside the stadium. Um, when I initially saw the video, it looked like... Um, some sort of security guard or something was kind of confronting the cameraman um, and there was some push, pushing and shoving. Um, turns out it was actually a football agent. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, that was a, you know, a bit of a lamentable scene which has been uh, grabbing all the headlines today, which was, uh, it was actually just a cameraman who is very usual in Portugal, especially for uh, whenever the big clubs play that, uh, you know, at the end of the game, there's usually a cameraman filming the team just coming out of the kind of mm. changing rooms, going back onto the coach. And so that that's where he was stationed, this particular cameraman. And he was filming that. And then the, uh, it was actually the, the president of Porto, Pinto da Costa, and this guy uh, who you, you just mentioned, I think Pinto, I can't remember. I think it's, I can't remember his first name, Ricardo Pinto, maybe that. Uh, who's just an agent, really? He's just a. Uh, he's not. Porto were quick to point out that he wasn't actually anything to do with the Porto staff. You know, he's just kind of an, an associate yeah. of theirs. But he was walking besides Pinto da Costa, uh, the president, 
they kind of walked up to this cameraman. I'm not quite sure what was said, but uh, yeah, like you said, a bit of pushing and shoving and the cameraman ended up falling over. Uh, there's been a few varying accounts. The guy himself said it wasn't, uh, you know, an attack or an assault. And, uh, but other people have said it was, and he was actually kicked a couple of times. Uh, but uh, yeah, very unsavory scene, unfortunately, uh, which, uh, you know, I think in, in Portugal, I have to say, unfortunately, this isn't completely unheard of when, whenever the big clubs mm. lose, especially, <laughs> uh, especially when they lose quite unexpectedly against a smaller club, you know, they just, they just seem to go yeah. into a bit, a bit of a meltdown. And that seems to have been what's happened with, uh, with, uh, you know, with Porto last night, they just, uh, couldn't really handle it, to be honest. And on the field then, I mean, Porto obviously had such a fantastic run in the Champions League, um, that brilliant finish to the Juventus tie in the last 16. Um, and from the bits I saw against Chelsea, to me, they looked a little bit closer to Chelsea than, than what the results might have suggested. Um, and obviously actually won the, the second leg. Um, was there a kind of a case of maybe taking the eye off the ball um, domestically in, in favour of that European run um, that has them in this position now chasing Sporting with only a couple of games left? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that because uh, they they had a very poor spell, which actually coincided with when there was no European football, uh, just kind of, especially after Christmas, you know, that kind of spell before European football starts again, January and February, especially, they had a, a whole, they had a series of draws. I think they drew about five out of seven games or something in the league. So that, that really, you know, saw them fall quite a long way behind sporting and they haven't been able, although they've been, uh, you know, coming on strongly and, and catching up, mm. it's probably too much of a gap to make up. Uh, you're absolutely right about their European campaign, you know, fantastic campaign, one of their best campaigns by any Portuguese side for, for years, because uh, like you said, again, I agree with you against Chelsea, they were actually very good. I don't think they were really mm. second best. In, in, in either game I think especially it's actually curious I think they were better in the first game which they lost 2-0 than they were in the second game which they won <laughs> yeah but, uh, I thought the same yeah yeah but they uh, you know with a, bit, with a bit more luck they might have actually got through that but uh, but you know their the, the whole run there was the Juventus obviously the you know the momentous tie against against Juventus and even in the group stage you know in the group stage they uh, they were in a group with Manchester City and that was their only defeat, the away game at Manchester City. And again, they gave a very good account of themselves and that they were a bit, a bit unlucky. One or two decisions went against them, uh, but they lost that game. But apart from that, they didn't lose any game and they didn't even concede any goal in the rest of their group games. So, you know, their whole Champions League campaign was really impressive. Uh, but it's it's one of these strange cases that happens sometimes when the their performances in Europe, I think, has, have definitely been their best all season, probably played better in Europe than they have domestically. And uh, I think it's about right where they are now. They're uh, you know, six points behind Sporting. Uh, the way the two teams have, have performed this season, I think that's probably about right. And uh, it's, it's going to need something special now for them to to overtake Sporting because as well as Sporting having to drop, having to lose a couple of games at least, uh, uh, Porto would have to win all of their remaining games and one of them is against yeah. Benfica away. So, you know, that's a tough one. 
Tom, from the outside looking in, it seems like Portuguese football is in a, a really good spot at the minute. Uh, we'll touch on the national team in a second, but if you look across the big five leagues in Europe, you've Andre Silva tearing it up in the Bundesliga this season. João Felix is just about still top of the Liga with, with Atletico Madrid. And the current favourite with the bookies for uh, PFA Player of the Year in the Premier League is Bruno Fernandes. Um, obviously, Fernandes and Felix weren't exactly secrets when they came out of the Portuguese League, given the, the transfer fees they commanded. Uh, but are there any players at the minute that are catching your eye that might go on to make a similar impact in the big five leagues as as Fernandes and Felix? Uh, there's, I think there's one which, uh, you know, Phil mentioned, or Kevin, sorry, I think mentioned right uh, when we were talking about sporting, which is uh, Nuno Mendes, the left back. is an absolutely phenomenal player, I think, super player. He made his debut for, port, for sporting at the tail end of last season. Uh, on his, he was still 17. He, was, uh, he made his debut, really impressed. Uh, next day, he was 18. He signed a new contract, and he hasn't been out of the side since. And he's been, uh, he's, he's been a real revelation. He's been absolutely superb at the end of last season and this season, especially. He's, you know, like I say, Sporting played his wing back system, so he kind of patrols the whole uh, of that flank, the left flank. And I, one thing I usually find with wing backs is they're usually good at one part of the game you know either strong defensively then just kind of you know lend a hand going forward or either or very good attacking but perhaps a bit suspect defensively he's he's got both sides of the game you know he is superb he's really solid defended uh he's strong he's physical but uh great at, at attacking as well superb crosser of the ball and uh you know no doubts in my mind that he's going to be He's going to be a big star in the, in the world game. I think the the only problem for Sporting would be, obviously, trying to keep hold of him. Uh, even though he's only eighteen years old, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, he's sold this summer. Uh, of course, everything's a little bit up in the air, isn't it, with finances, and we don't know how much money's about. And perhaps mm. if nobody's willing to spend a lot, perhaps Sporting will, you know, can try and hold on to him for another season because I'm pretty sure he's going to be. A Portugal international. Uh, well, he actually is. He made his debut in the recent international break. He played all three games because the normal left back, uh, Rafael Guerreiro, he was injured, and uh, and again he just kind of took took to that like a you know a duck to water. He just looked like a seasoned professional. He he really is something very special. I think Nuno Mendes, the sporting left back, I think is definitely the next one to to command a big fee out of Portugal. We've obviously got the delayed European Championships coming up this summer and Portugal, of course, are reigning champions as well as being reigning Nations League champions. Um, as well as the three players that I've mentioned already, Fernandes, um, Felix and Andre Silva, Bernardo Silva, Diogo Jota and certain Cristiano Ronaldo, just in the forward positions. I mean, it's a, a frightening squad of talent that they have. Uh, my cards on the table here, I have them backed for the tournament about two years at this stage, so I obviously think they have a good <laughs> chance. Um what chance do you think they have of repeating the trick they had uh, five years ago now in France and uh, and giving it a good crack of retaining their European crown? Yeah, like you say, five years ago, there's a joke going around here in Portugal that, oh, you know, let's let's kind of delay it for another year. The pandemic's not really over yet because, of course, every time it gets delayed, Portugal <laughs> <laughs> remain Portuguese, uh, European champions. So, uh, so yeah, you know, you're absolutely right about this talent. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it, when you just think of the... The, play, the teams these players are playing for, you know, Portugal have always had a kind of a smattering of 
one or two players at big clubs. But now they've literally got, you know, uh, Fernandes at United. You've got the three guys at Manchester City, of course, Bernardo Silva, Joao Cancelo, uh, Joao Cancelo and Ruben Diaz. And then, yeah, you've got, you know, Juventus uh, captain, of course, and you've got Joao Felix, like you said, uh, doing uh, doing OK Atletico Madrid. And, uh, and Diogo Jota, I mean, what an impact he's had at Liverpool. So you've got these players at top clubs, top European clubs, and they're not just kind of bit part players, you know, they're, they're kind of key members of the team. So there is a lot of excitement in Portugal. But that said, uh, a bit like I was talking a while ago with sporting you know it's one thing having the individuals it's another thing having the team mm. because uh if you look at portugal's uh 2016 winning you you know euro 16 uh squad or their team you probably look at that team you wouldn't say it's, it's interesting we did an article on portugal of portugal's best players from the last 30 years uh to make you know portugal national team and i think there was only two players uh, from that Euro 2016, who made it? Uh, I think Ronaldo and Pep. So, yeah, but but that team just kind of gelled really well. I know it wasn't for non-Portuguese viewers as well. It probably wasn't great watching, and it was kind of attritional team. But there's no doubt about it. You know, it was a, a team who really worked for each other and knew what they wanted to do and and got the job done. Uh, with uh, with this team now, the current team, we've seen kind of flashes of Fernando Santos, who's a, a conservative coach by nature, trying to kind of take the take the hand off the off the handbrake a little bit and make Portugal a little bit more attacking. But it's it's been quite a puzzle. It's been quite a conundrum to him to you know try and fit all these pieces and really get the best out of them. And uh, they've only really shown it in flashes. And for instance. The recent international break, they're really quite disappointing in all three games, although they they ended up getting quite good results, uh, a couple of wins and a draw. Uh, but, uh, but you know, I'd say the, 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 there's still work to do. You're right. On paper, it looks a fantastic team. Uh, well, it's a fantastic squad. It is a fantastic squad. No doubt about it on paper. But I'm not too sure yet that uh, Fernando Santos, the, the coach, has really found the formula to get the best out of them. Well, I suppose on that point, there's a certain Portuguese manager suddenly available. Um, and like you don't want to speculate um, on jobs going forward, especially when, when Santos has brought so much success already to Portugal. But do you think, Jose, I mean, you'd imagine unless there's another team crazy enough like Spurs were to, in the Premier League to, to take him on, you'd imagine... Jose will be available going into the summer and maybe even next year. Do you think the the national team would would be interested in taking him on going into especially going into the World Cup in Qatar? Yeah, it's a fair question. You know, he's he's said he's often said in the past, you know, that it's one of his ambitions and he's achieved so much in football that he said it's one of his ambitions to become Portugal manager, you know, and lead them into uh, you know, European championships, lead them into a World Cup. And so it is possible in the future. I'd be quite surprised if uh, I'd be quite surprised if it happened anytime soon, to be honest, yeah. because, you know, Fernando Santos has got a lot of credit in the bank. We have to remember that Portugal have never won a, a major tournament at all until he took over and, uh, you know, and straight away won the European Championship. So he's got a huge amount of, of credit in the bank and, uh 
and he's got a contract which takes him into that World Cup, into the next World Cup. He just signed that, I think, last year or something. So I'd be quite surprised if the FBF did a, you know, the Portuguese FA, if they did a kind of U-turn. Uh, mm. I suppose for that to happen, it would have to be a bit of a disastrous uh, your European Championship, which is possible because that group, Portugal's group, is really, uh, you know, talk about groups of death, that is... <laughs> probably the ultimate group of death because it's got uh, France, Germany and Portugal and then uh, and Hungary as well, who, you know, they've improved a lot recently, haven't they? And they've got, they're playing their matches at home. So, uh, so that won't be easy either. But, uh, but yeah, I'd be, to be honest, I'd be, I'd be really surprised yeah. if Fernando Santos isn't still the coach uh, for this tournament and for the next World Cup. And on the World Cup, um, I mean, one thing that I was struck by looking through their, their squad is the age profile. Um, I mean, obviously you have the likes of Ronaldo who's pushing 36, 37 now, but I mean, Ruben Diaz was, has been absolutely phenomenal for Man City this year. He's still only 23. Um, Nuno Mendes, like you mentioned earlier, for sporting is 18. Um, but even guys like who've been knocking around a while, um, like Ruben Neves is 24, Renato Sanchez is still only 23, and Bernardo Silva is 26. I mean, it feels like just the right sort of kind of age profile. Um, and especially uh, you'd imagine Ronaldo will want to go on out on a high um, in a World Cup and I suppose take his, his country as far as possible there next summer. Oh, yeah. I mean, what a way to go, wouldn't it? <laughs> wouldn't it? He's, he's spoken once or twice that he'd, he'd like to stay playing, you know, at the top until he's 40 years old. But, uh, you know, that's, I think, even for him, an absolute phenomenon, I think that's, that might be a bit unrealistic. And if Portugal were, you know, to win the World Cup, that would just be the perfect end, wouldn't it, to his, to his career. That, that would surely be the best place to, to call it a day. But, uh, but yeah, and, you know, like you, like you mentioned before, did, you know, you mentioned the players and uh, lots of people in Portugal are, uh, you know, very excited and a lot of them are exactly identifying that World Cup and saying, you know, this is possibly our best chance ever to, you know, to win the World Cup, Portugal's best chance ever to win the World Cup because uh, you've got all these players, top players. It's, it's really yeah. like a, another golden generation. The, the thing is with the original golden generation where you had players like Luis Figo and uh, Rui Costa and Vitor Bahia, uh, Fernando, uh, Fernando Couto, they were, you know, these were amazing players, but there were there were gaps. There were big gaps in the team where, uh, you know, you could tell that the drop off in quality was was very high. That that's not yeah. really the case anymore. You know, everywhere, every position, Portugal is covered, and in a few positions, they've got three or four, you know, really good, really good choices. So yeah, they're you know they're in a good place without a doubt. They're in a good place to, uh, you know, to try and. Mm. Uh, you know, to try and yeah, perhaps you know that's the ultimate prize, isn't it? And uh, it's, it's very. I've, I always find it quite amusing that uh, people look at Portugal now in completely different eyes than that, than they used to, and, and justifiably so because people kind of forget that Portugal used to be a, a minnow, really, a bit of a minnow. Yeah. And when it comes to, I mean, even you guys, uh, when you're thinking about the turn of the century, for example, Ireland were probably as big a team or as Portugal were, you know, I think before 2000 uh, in, there'd been 26, there's one stat I always say, there'd been 26 World Cups and European Championships in the 20th century. Portugal only qualified for four of them, you know, so that just 
just shows you, you know, they were a bit of a bit part player. But since 2000, they've qualified for every single one. And they've uh, they've actually got to the semi-final or better on five occasions. So, uh, so yeah, you know, no doubt about it. People are looking forward to that. Uh, looking forward to the Euros and looking forward to that World Cup. Definitely. Um, Tom, thanks for coming on this evening. Okay, no problem. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>